be without your precious word. We thank you. It's such a gift to us today. And Lord, as we open with prayer, we come in Jesus' name and through his blood, we agree together. I thank you, Lord, for anointing and speaking through me every single thing that needs to be spoken tonight. As living seeds of truth that is sown out into good soil. Lord, let your Holy Spirit, even now, we thank you for him moving upon your people that are going to be listening to this, helping us to be good soil in our hearts and minds and in our lives that we can be um, we can have eyes and ears of the Spirit that by the Holy Spirit, He would help us to be able to see and hear what we couldn't in our own ability. But the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the Word of God. That your Holy Spirit move upon our minds to be able to understand things maybe we couldn't before. And our hearts to be open and receptive to the truth of God's Word. And Lord, I thank you for your Word going out as a hammer that's going to break through the strongholds, a sword that's going to penetrate. And living seeds of truth sown into that good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, producing a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. Let the truth of your word take root and grow, Lord, and produce fruit. Let the winds of your spirit carry this everywhere it's supposed to go. We submit this unto you and we resist the devil. We bind up anything. We agree together, River of Life, anything that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to go and accomplishing what it's supposed to do. In the name of Jesus, we bind you right now. You will back off right now. We break your power. And Lord, we thank you for your mighty angels going and clearing away every hindrance. And Lord, this will, we stand on the promise, this word of the Lord that's spoken out, this word will get where it's supposed to and accomplish what it's supposed to do. We thank you for it now in Jesus' mighty name. All right, so we're going to look at, this is part 20 tonight, and I'm really dealing with the harvest of the Lord, okay? And we're going to look at Hanukkah and some things prophetically about how Hanukkah fits into end-time prophecy, which will be interesting to some people that are maybe not familiar with the story of Hanukkah. But I want to focus tonight on the harvest of the Lord. Now, how many knows that when Jesus came, Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. You know what the heartbeat of revival really truly is? It's to win souls. And I believe that the life's blood of revival is prayer. As God's people truly pray and fast and continue to pray, that's like the life's blood of revival. But the heartbeat of revival is God's heart, and that is to seek and save the lost and Jesus, his, the last command he gave us on the earth was what? Go into the nations and preach the word, preach the gospel to all creation. So his heart is that we get out and win souls. In River of Life, I commend this ministry. There's always been a heart for souls. And I believe that that was something God did in my life through Steve Hill and given me such a burden for the lost. And that's something that he ingrained in me, and thus I ingrained in this church. But this is a, a soul-winning church. This is a church that has a heart for the lost. And so tonight, we're going to deal with the harvest. Now, I'm going to read just a little bit out of Revelation 14. I'm going to finish the chapter. So we talked about the first part of 14. Now, we're on the last part of Revelation 14. And it says this, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So you're in the tribulation time here. And the persecution in the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, <clears throat> the great persecution is against Christians. 
And the reason is because those that are left behind that did not get caught away to the marriage supper, those that are here, they're going to realize that they cannot take the mark of the beast. They cannot worship the dragon, that's Satan. They can't worship the Antichrist. They can't worship his image. And so basically, they're the one group of people that are being difficult in all of society. The one group that will not go along with what the devil's doing. And so they're going to be severely persecuted. <coughs> and so you're dealing with uh, fines. They won't be able to buy or sell. So there's going to be an element there of starvation, but you're dealing probably with various types of fines. You're dealing with imprisonment, and you're dealing with martyrdom. And during this first three and a half years, the 144,000 have been saved for that time and God has released them in the earth. He sealed them on their head to protect them from deception and from the devil. And they, they weren't going to be among those that took the mark of the beast. <clears throat> so the Lord sealed them. And then he sent them out as evangelists. And they're going out among the nations, winning souls. But just as soon as all of this harvesting is taking place, it's severe persecution that's going on. And so toward the end of the first three and a half years, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at a period of time here where the first three and a half years are coming to an end and you're about to have the Antichrist in the temple and then you're going to see the last three and a half years, which has to do with Israel, you see. And so what the Lord said toward the end of this first three and a half years, is he told John, he said, write this down, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them because the Lord knew that the last three and a half years were going to be so severe. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head, and look at this, a sharp sickle in his hand. What is a sickle? It's the harvesting tool, okay? So he looks and he sees this vision on the cloud in heaven. He sees the Son of Man. He sees Jesus and he has a golden crown on. It has to do with his great authority as a king. But then he also had a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple of heaven, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud and was saying, put forth the sickle and reap. So these, these are like angelic activities that's going on, a picturing type of Jesus and his heart for the lost and administered through the angels, I should say. But anyway, he said, put your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he, he who sat on the cloud swung the sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. So this is the heart of the Lord, that the earth is being reaped in the harvest. And so when you begin to put the scriptures together, what you see is that there was this remnant bride that had made themselves ready that were caught away to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's going on. But then you see tribulation saints that are coming out of the tribulation through martyrdom. And they're being placed under a golden altar and given a white robe and told to be patient. But they're being harvested from the earth. And then you see another scene 
where the 144,000 have, have probably been martyred or they could have been raptured, but they're in heaven and they're worshiping before the throne. So God kind of gives us scenes of heaven of what's going on during this time frame. But you see God's heart for the lost. This right here marks like the final harvesting of Christians, so to speak. These are the tribulation saints. So right now, what's going on in the earth before we get into the tribulation time, God is about the harvest. And the Bible says this, and I believe this on my heart. I'm going to get into this in just a moment. But the Bible talks about in the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit. And he talks about the end of the age is the harvest. Okay, so God's heart is souls. Right now, we need to be soul winners. And then those that make themselves ready, there's going to be a rapture. But then there's going to be those that remain. And there's going to be a harvest out of that tribulation time. So again, I'll say this. We're looking at the final harvest of the tribulation before it gets into that last three and a half years which primar primarily has to do with israel okay so verse 17 and another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle then another angel the one who has power over fire came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying Put your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters, the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. So this is a negative harvest, so to speak, the wrath of God coming down. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to a horse's bridle for the distance of 600 stadia. So this is, you're seeing both a negative harvest of judgment, but you're also first, you're seeing a good harvest of righteousness there where people are being saved. Does this make sense? So God's trying to show here that he's the Lord of the harvest, that even there in the tribulation time, his heart was that as many would be saved as could be. God was so merciful that he reserved 144,000 that he would mark them to be in time evangelists to spread the gospel, even in the most difficult times, knowing that they would be martyred. That's how merciful God is. And he oversaw this harvest and he, he's put these angels in place to oversee and make sure this harvest of his people come in, the tribulation saints. And then this other harvest in my opinion, I believe has to do with the, probably the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And it is going to be a, a very negative harvest. It's a, it's a harvest of judgment and God's wrath and the wicked being killed, basically. So, and it's primarily with Israel. See, Israel is seen that way as the, as the vine of the Lord, the vineyard, so to speak, the vine. So you're dealing with the last harvest has to do with the earth being a lot of people dying but in the very 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 end do you remember me talking about the harvest cycles of israel some of you guys will remember this and the very first of the year around passover is the barley harvest and how it's a gentle harvest that you take it and you toss it up in the air and the wind separates the chaff and it's prophetic about the rapture of the remnant bride those 
that will humble themselves and let the wind of the spirit clean us out and get us ready but see then after that harvest you have the wheat wheat harvest and the wheat harvest has a hard shell around it and so there had to be like this sled that somebody would stand on and put weight on and an animal would pull it and it would go over the husk of the wheat and it would break that hard shell around it you see and that's how you dealt with the wheat harvest it was a hard harvest and it had to be crushed and so that has to do with the tribulation saints is this making sense here and then at the very end of the year you have to do with the harvest it has to do with the grapes and the olives and the nuts and things like that in the fall time and that is the final harvest and that's what it's talking about here the grapes and that has to do with the wrath of God the treading down the wine press of the wrath and at the very end when Jesus actually physically comes to the earth he said he's going to send his angels to go gather the elect unto him and that's when the angels are going to go get those one-third of the Jews that were protected probably at Petra the angels going to go get them and bring them to Jesus and any of the remaining Christians that somehow have survived they're going to be brought to him and the Jews that remain are going to look on Jesus and the Bible says they're going to look on him whom they pierced and they're going to mourn because they're going to realize that he really was the Messiah this whole time and the Bible Paul prophesied he said there will come a day when all of Israel shall be saved it's going to be that moment that day that the remaining Jews are going to be in the nation of Israel looking at the Messiah. They're going to weep. They're going to mourn because they realize Jesus really is the Messiah. But they're all going to believe in him at one time. And the Bible says all of Israel shall be saved. And then Paul said it's like life from the dead. It's going to release resurrection life in the earth. Where the curse that came because of Adam is going to be lifted. And people, people are going to live long lifespans again. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden under the jurisdiction of the reign of Jesus Christ. Does all that make sense? So that's like the harvest cycle. So when you see the grapes and you see the wrath and the wine press and all that, it's dealing with that final harvest, okay? There was something that I'm going to get into now. Let me shift gears. Next week, God willing, we'll look at Revelation chapter 15, okay? So we just finished 14. It has to do with the harvest. All right. There's something that Charles Dickens wrote that I want to read. And I believe that this is uh, what we're looking at tonight. So there was a book he wrote, A Tale of Two Cities. And this is how he began the book. He said this. He said it was the best of times, but it also was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom but also the age of foolishness at the same time. It's the epoch of belief, but also of incredu incredulity, which has to do with a lack of faith. And then it, has this, it was the season of light and the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, but also a winter of despair. And so what you're going to see in these last days it's going to be glorious times in one way but it's also going to be the darkest times in another way but it's simultaneous just like what he wrote the best of times and the worst of times together <laughs> so it's going to be really interesting because here's what we're looking at 
before Jesus comes to catch away his remnant bride, the earth is going to get darker and darker and more evil in every respect. But at the same time, the remnant bride, God's people, we're going to see some of the most glorious times in church history. We're going to see these things. In Revelation chapter 19 and Matthew 25, it talks about a bride that's made herself ready and wise virgins with extra oil. We're going to see God move so powerfully by his spirit that he's literally going to prepare a bride to meet the Lord in the air. You're going to see that, and I believe it's already begun in our lives. Number two, Matthew 13, 39 says that the end of the age is the harvest and the harvesters are the angels, which you read about that, some of that in Revelation chapter 14. Remember the angels with the sickle. But what you have to understand is it's going to take a supernatural move of God to bring in the harvest in these latter days. We're not going to be able to do it in our own strength. This is not something that your evangelistic efforts and human effort is going to be able to accomplish. It's something that when the Bible says in Zechariah, it's not by our human might and our human power, but by my spirit, it's going to be that. It's going to have to be that. And the Bible says that the angels are the harvesters. You're going to see in the days to come an incredible move of the Holy Spirit. River of Life's going to see it. You're going to see it in part here through you're going to see what god's going to do in river of life but around the world god's going to be pouring out his spirit and god himself is going to yield the harvest what does the bible say jesus say pray pray to the god of the harvest remember he said this he said some sow some water but others will reap the harvest okay so there's going to be the lord he is the lord of the harvest he's the one that when jesus shows up You've been fishing all night, only catching a few things. But then Jesus says, cast a net on the other side, and a supernatural harvest comes in. You see, that's what you're going to see happen in the days to come. It's not something that man can do. God's going to send his angels, and they are going to push back the tides of darkness. They're going to assist in the gathering in of the sheaves, and the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in such a way that the harvest will yield before us but it's not going to be by our human effort it's going to be by the power of the holy spirit so even though these are going to be the worst of times in some ways it's going to be the best of times and you're going to see river of life in the days to come the great global outpouring of the holy spirit there was an a prophet years ago there's been so many prophecies that I'll, I'll share some but we know from the bible let's look at that one first we know in joel chapter 2 he said in the last days i will pour out my spirit on all flesh so we know there is a promise that in the last days god himself will do this he will pour out his spirit okay now there was an individual a prophetic individual back in the late 80s i believe that's when he got this vision and he began to write about it in publications later it came out in a book in the early 90s and he was talking about the harvest and this is what god showed him god showed him that there would be a great 
tidal wave come in of revival. And he saw how a surfer has to be ready to catch the wave and all that, okay? But he saw this wave come in. He said the wave was so powerful that people that saw it and experienced it thought this is the big one. You know, the Lord's coming. And it was, it was really powerful. He said in this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this big tidal wave coming in, he said many people were saved and many of God's people were mightily touched. And then he said, though, after that wave, there was an even bigger wave that was to come. And he said that that was like a huge tsunami wave. And a lot of the people that had been really touched in the previous wave were now going to be used in this huge wave. And that's what's about to come. See, the first wave that he saw was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened in the 90s. We saw God begin it actually in Argentina in the mid to late 80s. Carlos Anacondia began to feel led to do these crusades in La Plata. And Sergio Scataglini, who was here, remember? He, it was his father that really backed Anacondia in La Plata. And that's where it all began. And there was this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit that began to take place in Argentina. And God began to move simultaneously, began to move through uh, like Benny Hinn. And he brought Rodney Howard Brown over here to America. And, and so in the early 90s, we began to see a move of the Holy Spirit in America. And then God poured out his spirit in Toronto in 94 and then Brownsville in 95 and all the way up until probably 2005 we saw a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and you gotta understand it was like one big wave because it was all over the world in the African continent you know Reinhard Bonnke was seeing some of the well I would say the biggest crusades in church history there was even a legitimate crusade they've got this on video where one million people in one crusade gave their life to Jesus Christ, signed a paper saying that they were not saved before and they gave their life to Christ in one crusade, one million people. That's the harvest. And so Reinhardt was seeing it in Africa. China was seeing, because of communist China, China's severe persecution, but it's like the underground church was experiencing an explosion of revival. And they were, the, the church was so exploding in China that Pat Robertson used to say back in the 90s, he felt like China was just going to be overtaken with the gospel. But see, end time prophecy says different about China. See, that's the thing. But China was experiencing an underground church, a great revival. There, there was video footage of these underground meetings where the Holy Spirit would just fall and you would see them all just slammed by the power of God. But they had to meet in secret. There's an underground church. All over the world, reports out of Guatemala had, had reports of the Holy Spirit falling in Uganda. And all these reports, Europe was seeing a move of God. And so this was that first wave that came in. And during that revival, I mean, those that remember the Benny Hinn meetings and all those that would come down and get saved. And I remember seeing, there was something like around four to four and a half million people that came through Brownsville. And I would say in my estimation, and I believe it's a somewhat educated um, thought behind this because I, I'm very familiar with this revival. I would say Brownsville, through all of the, the nights that they saw people get saved through the Awake Americas and everything, 
I would say that they saw at least a million people get right with God, at least. Toronto, they had also like four, four and a half million people come through Toronto. People were getting saved, powerfully touched by God. So this was that first wave that came through. But what this prophet saw was after that first wave, people thought, and I remember in the 90s, they thought, this is the big one. You know, Jesus is coming. Look at the year 2000. You better get ready. You know, all these things. I remember all that. But see, that was the first wave. And what the prophet saw was there would be a bigger wave coming behind it and that that would actually yield the great harvest. And that those that were touched really powerfully in the first wave would be used in this second wave very powerfully. So I believe that great, great revival is right around the corner and it's going to be something that's bigger than what we saw in the 90s. And there was also, um, you guys remember David Wilkerson and people have been posting this, you know, but he prophesied back in the 80s, I believe it was 1986. I don't have it in front of me, but you can Google this and look this up. He saw that there would be a plague that would hit and he said that it would bring New York to its knees. And he said, I believe, if I remember right, it was a global pandemic, but definitely affected America. And he said, but on the other side of the pandemic would come the third great awakening. Isn't that something? Prophesied that something like 1986, I believe. And uh, just giving you some, there, there are many different prophecies, but David Ruiz was hit. I, I've got the video somewhere, but he was leading worship back in 1994. Toronto would what what happened in Toronto was that John and Carol Arnott had such a hunger to see a move of God I mean they were really desperate and so out of their desperation um, God was really moving through Benny Hinn in their life John worked for Benny at one time but John was just so desperate so hungry he heard that God was moving really powerfully in Argentina he said that he didn't even really have the money to go but he told his wife we've got to go that they just put everything on a credit card and went to, to uh, the Argentine Revival and went to Claudio's meetings and Claudio prayed for them. And they came back. They were hungry. They were desperate. They were willing to pay a price and go somewhere for God to move in their life. See, God sees that hunger. And then when Randy Clark got so touched at Rodney's meetings, he, he called up Randy and Randy was just really in a place of humility, a small, small ministry unknown. He was like, I... I don't want to go there and preach. I don't know that I really have much to say. And uh, John talked him into it, and he went there. thought he was just going to be there a couple of nights. Well, the Holy Spirit fell in the great Toronto outpouring. That is still going on, really, 20-something years later. But they were hungry, and they were desperate for a move of God. So you've got to have that hunger. How many are hungry to see Book of Acts Christianity? You're hungry to see God save the lost, I mean to the uttermost. You're, you're hungry enough to pay a price for revival, to really pray, to really fast and get desperate for him. See, there's got to be a hunger. People that get settled in, they get complacent, they get comfortable with where they're at. They're not, those are the people that are, God's not going to pour out his spirit. It's those that have something in them that's desperately crying out for God. Lord, reach down and heal the sick raise the dead 
Lord, deliver the demonized. We've got to see you come down. We can only do what we can do, but we need you to come down, Lord, and bring in this harvest and pour out your spirit and do what no man can do. It's that desperate cry. And so, anyway, the great outpouring was taking place in the 90s, and I believe that we're on the other side of that now, obviously, but I believe that things are moving now to where we're about to see that tsunami. And that one has to do what people have seen. Now, I'll give you a few. Bob Jones prophesied that, and you got to understand, when he prophesied this, <laughs> anyway, he prophesied that the Chiefs would win the Super Bowl. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the Chiefs, but they were not Super Bowl material when he prophesied that, Okay. I used to tease Zach, but anyway, <laughs> neither are his team either, but you never know. It could change next year. But anyway, so they, um, they were not Super Bowl material. As a matter of fact, they hadn't won a Super Bowl since people could remember. And so Bob says, the Chiefs are going to go to the Super Bowl and they're going to win. And he says, when they win, he said, it's going to be a sign that the, the last day revival is going to take place soon. Isn't that something? And I remember watching, I'm not really into football that anyway, but I remember watching this because of that prophecy. And I remember when they started doing really bad and I thought, man, the Chiefs are going to blow it. And, uh, but anyway, they ended up making a last minute comeback and winning that thing. And Bob had prophesied that years before. And so I believe that we're coming to a time, because there's so many different voices that are, that are saying the same thing prophetically that it's near how many knows that we've been studying end time prophecy that the coming of jesus is getting very near we don't have a lot of time and so the lord is going to pour out his spirit and and it's going to amp everything up what would normally take a huge amount of time with human effort god can do in a year what would take man a hundred years and god will accelerate things by the outpouring of the holy spirit a harvest of millions and millions. You, you never know. It could be over a billion. But globally, the harvest to yield. And God will bring it in by the power of his Holy Spirit. But while this is going on, it's like Dickens wrote, he says, the best of times, it's the worst of times. It's the age of wisdom. I believe the church is going to grow in spiritual wisdom like never before the restoration of all things, but the world is getting more and more foolish and confused. It's a time of belief, but it's also a time of unbelief in the world, isn't it? It's a time of light, but it's also a time of darkness. So the world in 2 Timothy 3, which I'm not going to read and get into very much tonight at all, I'm just going to reference it, but 2 Timothy 3 shows the, the world circling the toilet bowl as it goes down. Morality will go down, 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 down. And we're seeing that. So we're seeing the best of times in the church in many ways, spiritually speaking, but you're going to see the world in the worst of times. Is this making sense? So I wanted to strengthen your faith tonight in a hunger for revival. And let me just read something here. I was reading this this week and it really ministered to me. But there was a young man by the name of Evan Roberts that 
saw a great revival in Wales, 19, um, around 1904. And Evan Roberts was a very young man. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he was around 19 years old. But he was hungry for God to move. And the Welsh revival was so powerful when the Holy Spirit fell that it impacted all of society, more so than any other revival that I know of. And this revival was so powerful that I want you to think about what I'm saying because this is actually true that it happened. All of the things like the bars and the brothels and all of that began to just close down. The heathen would come into town. There were stories of things like this. And they, they had been there in the last year or whatever. They were coming through and they were going to go to a brothel. And the women there now were all Christian saints. And they, they weren't going to participate, but they were trying to lead them to Jesus now. There were stories of that they had had these donkeys. They called them pit ponies or whatever that would go in. These, these mines and they would load them up. And, and these men had trained these pit ponies to... Uh, respond to certain commands and most of the commands were cuss words and this is this is true historically true that now they quit cussing they had to retrain these animals to understand what to do now they couldn't keep bibles on the shelves they were being bought so quickly that the printers were having a very difficult time keeping up with the demand Churches were overflowing. They were having to have more services, longer services. They were having to accommodate. It was not uncommon for something like what I'm about to describe. Here you are going down the road and you see somebody on, on the side of the road over there looking like they're in horrible anguish. And somebody go up to him and say, you okay? And he said, yes, I'm not sure. I just feel like if I don't get things right with God, I'm going to go to hell right now. And, and there was just such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that people literally, their lives were being gripped with the fear of God all over society. Evan, let me just read a little bit about what happened before the revival. It was so powerful. Let me say one more thing. It was so powerful that th this is in Welsh history that during the year of the height of the Welsh revival that they had had in their culture soccer was the big sport which it is in a lot of other places other than america it's a lot bigger it was the big sport it was a big deal well they basically got to the super bowl of soccer and they have in welsh history canceled due to revival because the players were at church and all the people didn't want to come they didn't care it was like we want to be in the revival so let me just read a little bit about Evan and what God was doing in his life before the revival. And it says this in the book that I'm reading here. It says, for a period of time, Evan had been seeking and finding more of an intimate relationship with the Lord. William Davies, a deacon at Moriah Chapel. Now, Moriah Chapel was his home church, okay? Had counseled young Evan. Again, Evan was, you know, very, at this time, very young. But counseled young Evan don't ever miss a prayer meeting in case the Holy Spirit would come and you're not there. So Evan faithfully attended Monday evening meeting at Moriah, 
Tuesday at Pisgah, Wednesday at Moriah, Thursday and Friday at other prayer meetings and Bible classes. He did this for 13 years, faithfully praying for a mighty visitation of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fell, you know, he was only like 19, 20 years old. So he had been doing this through all those teenage years when he was very young. He was hungry. How many are hungry for more of the Lord, you see? And then it, and then it says this, one day before school, now he was going to go off to school, okay? One day before this, in spring of 1904, Evan found himself in what he later referred to as like a mount of transfiguration experience in his life. The Lord revealed himself in such an amazing and overwhelming way that Evan was filled with divine awe. After this, he would go through periods of uncontrollable trembling that were so pronounced that his family became concerned. I mean, you guys have ever trembled under the power of God. I have. It says, for weeks, God visited Evan each night when his family pressed him to tell, him, tell them about the experiences, he would say that it's something indescribable. But see, he had been seeking God in those prayer meetings all those 13 years, desperate for a move of God, pressing into God, and now the Lord's really showing up in his personal life. And so when the time came near for him to enter school at Newcastle, he was reluctant to go, afraid that he would miss these encounters with the Lord. At this time, the convention was being held in this city that I do not know how to pronounce, a few miles from his school. And an evangelist there named Seth Joshua was leading the meetings on Thursday morning, September 29th in 1904. Evan Roberts and his 19 other young people, including his friend Sidney Evans, attended the meeting. On the way, the Lord moved on this small company and they began to sing prophetically, It's coming. It's coming. The power of the Holy Ghost. I receive it. I receive it. The power of the Holy Ghost. And they begin to prophesy. And during the 7 o'clock meeting, Evan was so deeply moved in this meeting that he broke down completely at the close of the service. This was when said Joshua first used the words that would become known as the cry of the revival. Bend us, O Lord. And Evan entered into such a deep travail that he heard nothing more. He later testified that the Holy Spirit whispered to him, this is what you need, which to Evan simply meant to yield to the Holy Spirit. Bend me, O Lord, he cried over and over. But the fire didn't fall yet. At the nine o'clock meeting, the spirit of intercession was moving on the congregation in great power. Evan was bursting to pray, and he felt the Holy Spirit prompting him to do so publicly with tears streaming down his face Evan began to cry bend me Lord bend me and bend us and the Holy Spirit came upon him in a mighty baptism that filled Evan with what he called Calvary's love and a love for Calvary that night the message of the cross was so branded in Evan's heart that there would be no other theme of the great revival he would soon help lead. From that night on, Evan Roberts could focus on one thought, the salvation of souls at the foot of the cross. And historians would refer to that night as the great meeting. And let me just read one more thing here. 
one midnight shortly after this, Evans' roommate and closest friend, Sidney Evans, came into his room to find Evans' face shining with a holy light. Astonished, he asked what had happened. And Evans said that he had just seen the whole of Wales being lifted up to heaven in a vision, and he prophesied, we are going to see the mightiest revival Wales has ever seen. And the Holy Spirit is coming just now. We must be ready. We must have a little band to go all over the country preaching. And suddenly he stopped and looked at his friend with piercing eyes. And he said, do you believe that God can give us 100,000 souls? And the presence of the Lord so gripped Sidney that he could not help but believe. Later, while sitting in the chapel, Evan saw in a vision some of his old companions who were there among other young people. And a voice spoke to him saying, go to these people. He said, Lord, if it is your will, I will go. Then the whole chapel became filled with a light so dazzling that he could only faintly see the minister in the pulpit. <laughs> wow. He was deeply disturbed and wanted to make sure that the vision was from the Lord. He consulted with his tutor who encouraged him to go. So anyway, and then right after that is when the Holy Spirit fell and God began to move so powerfully. But what stuck out to me is this. Evan was desperately hungry for God in his personal life that drove him to pursue the Lord. And because of his desperate hunger, God poured out his spirit in Evan's life and then later used Evan to see an outpouring that affected the whole nation. You see, that's what happened to Moses. Moses had to have his personal burning bush experience where he was alone with God. And the fire of God came to Moses on an individual basis. And he heard the voice of the Lord in the fire. He encountered God in the fire. It was a personal thing. Then later, we read that Moses led the entire nation to Mount Sinai, where the fire of God came on the top of the mountain and affected the whole nation, where an entire nation heard the word of the Lord, the voice of God, out of the fire. Does this make sense tonight? You have to have your personal burning bush before you can lead others to have their encounter. And that's what Evan had. He was, he was desperate. He was hungry. And so that leads me to kind of close out with the Hanukkah story because in many ways, this is connected to great revival and end-time prophecy. We know in John chapter 10, verse 22, at that time... Now, this is John chapter 10, verse 22. So this is the disciple, the beloved disciple John writing about Jesus here. He said, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. Dedication in Hebrew is Hanukkah. Okay, so it's the feast of Hanukkah. Took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So Jesus thought enough of Hanukkah to go to Jerusalem and walk through the temple and see the lights of the Hanukkah that were lit. So let me read you about the story of Hanukkah and where it comes from. And then I'm going to close by giving you a couple things about revival. I just feel it tonight as I'm preaching. I feel that as I've been sharing these prophecies, I feel the fire of God. And I feel as I've been talking tonight, people can feel you, some of you can feel it you just there's a hunger for more and revival is near i'm telling you that in the near future river of life is going to see an outpouring 
And let me say one more prophecy. Ruth Ward Heflin was taken up, and she was in Jerusalem. And she said that I was taken up in a vision, and it was like I was in the air looking down at America as a big map or whatever. And she said, I saw all of America beginning to be ablaze in the fires of revival. And she said, I knew that it was the great end time outpouring. And she said, as the fire was growing and all of, all of America was burning in the fires of revival, when it really reached its full blaze, she said, I noticed that Dallas, Texas was the center and the hub of the revival. That has not been fulfilled yet. And let me just tell you something. I don't believe Brother Steve would mind me sharing this. He's gone home to be with the Lord. But Brother Steve knew that Dallas was the next move of God. That's why he moved here. It just hasn't happened quite yet, but it's about to. So he said that even in the days of Pensacola, that, that prophets were seeing that. They were seeing Dallas would be next. And he said that they sent them uh, like a map. And you know how you have a gun that you can set on it? And the handle was on... Uh, the Florida panhandle the trigger of the gun was on Pensacola but the barrel of the gun was on Dallas Texas and it was a prophecy so anyway I could go on and on but that's trust me God's about to move here in Dallas so a couple things so let me read about this Antiochus Epiphanes this guy was a nutcase he was a ruler of a Syrian Greek ruler okay so real quick I'll share this so you guys remember the Alexander the Great and then when he died young remember I've taught on this in prophecy he's he allowed his four generals to take over the various parts of his kingdom she so had one in Europe another in the um, what we would call like the Soviet Union area then you had um, Seleucid which was in the Middle East and then you had Ptolemy, which was down south in the Egypt into the greater continent of Africa area. And they said, well, who are you going to leave your kingdom to? He said, let these four generals fight it out. Well, they did. And it ended up that the Middle East and Egypt area were the two greatest. And they were constantly at war. And later on in history, Antiochus Epiphanes becomes the ruler over the Middle East, the Syrian Greek Empire of the Middle East. And these were the ones that ruled over the nation of Israel as well as the greater part of the Middle East of this time in history. Down in the south, there was a, a ruler that took over that Ptolemy Empire. And Antiochus was not content ruling over the Middle East. He wanted to conquer down in Egypt. So he would go down there and lead these various campaigns. If you read about it, it's really interesting because in Egypt and the African continent, their military would use elephants in war. Can you imagine trained elephants in war? That would be difficult to defeat, my friend. I wouldn't want to roll in with my chariot and there was several elephants there. So anyway, the, needless to say, um, Antiochus could not defeat this guy. And because he was a nutcase, there was something, if I remember right, that Epiphanes, that you could say it a certain way in the Hebrew Aramaic, 
And instead of saying like the illustrious one, it would say something like the nutcase. And so the Hebrews would <laughs> say it. Anyway, so he would go down and he would, he would try to conquer the, the Egyptian area and he couldn't and he would come back in a rage. And so in his rage, he began to take it out on Israel. And so here was what he was doing. I'm just going to read what I wrote here. So just keep this in mind. This is what's going on. Antiochus Epiphanes, a delusional Greek ruler over Syria, most of the Middle East, wanted to conquer Israel fully and sought to do away with God's word and culture. Make all the Jews of this time become Greek. Now, I've got to understand, this is 167, 170 years. I'm not sure how long the persecution was actually going on before war. But this was almost a couple hundred years before Jesus came. And so what God was doing in the earth, he was doing through the nation of Israel and through the temple. Do you see what I'm saying? This was what God was doing. So this was what Satan was targeting. All right. So Antiochus Epiphanes began to make it illegal for the Jews to obey the Bible. He tried to make it not only illegal, but persecute anybody that would circumcise their child on the eighth day which god commanded that they do they were not allowed to observe the sabbath or celebrate the feast or keep a kosher diet or study torah or go to synagogue like going to church he was successful at temporarily stopping the temple rituals this guy went to such an extreme that he erected a statue of zeus which is the greatest of the Greek gods. He erected a statue of Zeus in the temple. Is everybody seeing how blasphemous this is? Who is this starting to sound like to you? The Antichrist. That's exactly right. See, this is prophetic. So he erects a statue of Zeus in the temple. And listen to this. He sacrifices a pig on the bronze altar. To defile it he boils some of the broth of the pig and takes it and pours it over all through the temple over any Torah scrolls over the menorah over the altar of incense he's going through on purpose to defile the temple he desperately wanted to defile anything to do with the temple he erected throughout all of Israel listen to what he's doing he erected shrines and altars throughout the land and the people were being forced by the Greek military forced to sacrifice animals as tokens of worshiping the Greek gods so the military would go into an area and they would force the people out there they would build an altar to Greek gods and they would force somebody uh, some leader somebody willing to do it at first but they would force them to sacrifice to Greek gods okay some Jews were fine with this transition which is sad isn't it but how many knows that it's sad today to see a lot of the things that professing Christians are seem to be comfortable with isn't it so they were fine with it but most of the Jews were deeply troubled and stayed devoted to God those who were disobedient to the Greeks were either tortured or killed or both. Many that were tortured, their bodies were mutilated 
And while they were still alive and breathing, they were crucified. Some women whose sons they had circumcised were strangled to death, and some were crucified with the dead bodies of their children made to hang around their neck. Hebrews chapter 11. How many remembers Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith? Remember reading that chapter? And it gets down to a place where it talks about those that were martyred and tortured, being sawn in two and things like that. A lot of Bible scholars believe that some of that was a reference to this period of time, that those that were faithful to God unto death were tortured to death. So Epiphanes led a violent assault against God's people. And there was a city, let me skip down, if Epiphanes had been successful at long-term extinguishing God's people and culture and replaced it with a Greek culture, it would, have, it would have hindered, if not stopped, the coming of Christ because Jesus had to come as the king of the Jews. He had to come to the temple to do what he was prophesied to do. You understand what I'm saying? He had to ride in on a donkey on that day and he had to die on Passover. Does this make sense? That for prophecy to be fulfilled, things had to be ready for prophecy to be fulfilled. Satan knew that the coming, somehow the devil knew that, that the coming of the Messiah was drawing near, and he was trying to stop and frustrate God's plans, but how many knows the devil can never do that? Just as Herod tried to kill the male babies when Christ was born, and, and Satan stirred up the... Uh, during the days of Moses, Satan stirred up Pharaoh to try to kill all the male babies then. But the Maccabees, now here's the Maccabees. There was a family of faithful priests. These were the priests that if you went to the temple, these were the leaders that would oversee your offerings. You would bring your animals. They would inspect them. They would kill them according to the, the right pattern God gave Moses. And regarding what type of offering it was, they would offer it for you. And they were there to bless you and receive the offering. These were the faithful ones ministering in the temple. Okay? The king Epiphanes, now this is where it all begins. He sends his representatives throughout the land. And in a city named Modin, there was to be a sacrifice. And the representative asked to an influential priestly leader named Mattahias to do the sacrifice as a pledge of his allegiance to the Greek king Epiphanes. But listen to what Mattahias said. He said, far be it from us to desert the law and its ordinances. We will not obey the king's words, turning aside from our religion, either to the right or to the left. But another Jew came forward in sight of all to sacrifice on the altar. And here's what happened. Just like Mattahias' great ancestor, Phineas. How many remember reading about Phineas in the Bible? Where he burned with zeal for God and ran his scepter through a couple people that were sinning and it stopped the plague. Just like his ancient ancestor, Mattahias burned with zeal for God and he killed the Jew right there on the spot. Capital punishment, which the law of Moses sanctioned for what he was about to do. But this started a war. When Mattahias stood up and said, basically, to those that came, he said, we don't care what King Epiphany says. We are not going to turn to the right or left. We are not going to worship Greek gods. 
And we're not going to adopt the Greek culture. And we're not going to sacrifice on this pagan altar. We are going to serve God. And we're going to do it the way he says we're going to do it. And then when another Jew tried to compromise, he killed him. That started a war right there. And so Mattahias, his son's name was Judah in Hebrew, Yehuda, And his nickname was the, was the Maccabee, which means the hammer. And so that's where you get the Maccabees. But they became these faithful group of priests. The Spirit of God came upon them. And they became a group of warrior priests like King David. King David was, a, was like, even though he was of the tribe of Judah, King David was like a priestly individual, wasn't he? He had, even though he was of Judah descent, he still had a very prayer, worship, priestly type ministry. So King David, in a sense, was kingly and priestly. And he was a great warrior. And so that's these Maccabees. Even though they were priests, they also had like a kingly rulership about them. And they had, they were great warriors before the Lord. And God gave them victory, though very small in number, after the death of their father, Mattathias, Judah, the son, took charge, whose nickname was Maccabee. And in a three-year bloody war, they pushed back the king and his large army, which was a supernatural victory. Then they proceeded to... Now remember, they were coming in like guerrilla warfare. This was one of the greatest... Does everybody really understand this for a moment? Let's appreciate the fact that the Syrian Greek army was one of the greatest military forces on the face of the planet. Think about that for a minute. And Mattathias, the, uh, this priest, who I guarantee you had absolutely no training in warfare. Him and his family rallied a cry those that are for the lord come to us and people came to him but they were just a ragtag army that had probably never fought a war in their life and they began to go into guerrilla warfare they would come in at night come in different ways to attack but over a three-year period they proceeded in driving the army out and rededicating and cleansing the temple as holy unto God. They had to build a brand new bronze altar cut with stone because of that abomination that was there. And once they had cleansed out everything that needed to go, rebuilt the temple furniture, reconsecrated the temple, they were ready to begin their priestly duties, but how many remember reading that the menorah was supposed to stay lit night and day? So they had to go in every evening, every morning. They'd burn the incense, trim the menorah, fill it with fresh oil, and they could eat of the table of showbread, etc. But they would go in to burn the incense, and they only had enough oil that would last for one day. And so they decided to light the menorah with it, supernaturally it burned for eight days non-stop it was a miracle and it really encouraged them because they realized the lord gave us this victory in the lord he is with us they needed that encouragement after all they've been through and so this was um eight days the menorah miraculously stayed lit it was enough time now for them to make more oil and that's why there's eight candles that are lit 
on the Hanukkah menorah. And there's always a ninth candle, which is the shamash, which is the servant candle from which you light the others. So every year on Kislev 25, the Hebrew month of Kislev, the 25th day, there's the celebration of Hanukkah, which lasts for eight days each night and another candles added to the menorah until the final night when all eight are lit. So let me just give you a couple things and I'm going to close with this. How many of you guys, when we, were, when we were reading through this, you saw that this is a picture and type of end time prophecy? See, that's why we need to learn about some of these things in Hanukkah. You got to understand there's coming a time. Let me say this and I, I'm going to just give me your best ear and look this way. In the Western Greek mentality, we see things linear. And we even make it in our books. I remember this guy, he's a friend of mine, had, had a timeline. And he had taken it and posted it on his wall. It was this timeline that went way back. And, and all through major events through history, it was really interesting to look at. And I really enjoyed it. But our mindset seems to be very linear. But see, you have to understand something. The Hebrew mindset about prophecy is not so much linear as it is like a cycle. What was will be again. Does that make sense? And some say about our universe, this is a totally different thing. I remember talking to Brother Zach about this because I saw this too. Some believe that our universe, which is really an odd thing to think about, that somehow we're moving through space like this. Like somehow like a cycle. Physicists are saying that we're always in motion. Others say that our universe as we know it is still expanding. But see, here's how the Hebrew mind understands prophecy. They see it kind of like that. Like a continual moving of a cycle. And so when you look back and you see in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, you see this king who's sitting up there and builds an image and demands Israel to worship his image. Then you see again this big cycle come. You see Antiochus Epiphanes once again building a big image, demanding Israel to worship him and his image. <laughs> then you see again another cycle. And it, there's more of these, but and you get to the very end and you see once again the Antichrist setting himself self up in the temple, putting an image and demanding them to worship him and his image. So there is something to the Hebrew mindset about prophecy that what was will be again. And it's like a, got almost like a cycle effect as it's moving. The great warning about Hanukkah that I see is this, to not conform I believe that Hanukkah is very prophetic about end-time prophecy. Not only for the nation of Israel, the Antichrist and his image, not only that, but the fact that the world system was trying to force God's people to become like the world system. There's going to come a forced mark of the beast. You understand? And there's going to be great pressure one day to worship the dragon, to worship the, 
uh, Antichrist and to worship his image. I believe personally that the remnant bride only is going to be caught away before it gets too bad. But the world's going to have that. The tribulation saints are going to face that. There's going to be great pressure to conform to the world and to sell out God. And just like some of the Jews of this time, they were okay. They were willing, think about it for a minute, they were willing to give up everything that God gave them. They were willing to shave their beard, wear a toga, you know, go around as little Greeks, worship Greek gods, go to Greek temples. They were willing to sell out God. But there were many others that were not. But they were severely persecuted. And I believe that we're moving into a time, and I hope everybody hears me, it's already here, even in America, where Christians are being marginalized. Treated a certain way. Persecution. Being targeted. It's the Hanukkah story. It's like the cycle of how the devil begins to stir up persecution against God's people. And I'll tell you what it'll do. It's going to do just like it did in the days of, of uh, the Hasmonean dynasty that we were just reading about. It's going to separate the wheat from the tares. It's going to separate who are really gods and who are not gods. So number one, river of life, don't be willing to compromise with this world. When we accept Christ as our Savior, people should see such a radical difference about us. All of a sudden now, just like in the days of Evan Roberts, you know, we used to have a foul mouth that we don't have anymore. We used to dress a certain way. Now people see that we dress different. We used to hang around in certain sinful places and party with the heathen. Now we don't. We would rather be among God's people at God's house. It's like they see that we're a totally, completely different person. People that knew us before say, man, you've changed. That's a real Christian right there. Because the Bible says once you're born again, the old things will pass away and everything will become new. All of a sudden, you're not lying and you're not drinking and you're not doing the things you used to do. All the old ungodly entertainment that you used to enjoy certain types of music and you find now it's repulsive. You don't want to hear all those F words. You don't want to listen to all that filth anymore. Now, the things that you used to enjoy watching, it grieves you. You just don't want to watch it anymore. What's happening? You're, you're born of God, and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. He's changing you into the image of Christ. But let me tell you, just like the Hanukkah story, do not compromise with this sinful world. Number two, the altar in our lives in prayer needs to be rebuilt. They had to rebuild that altar that had a pig sacrificed on. In the days of Elijah, Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume that altar. But the Bible says he had to rebuild the altar that Jezebel had torn down on Mount Carmel. We need to rebuild the altar in our lives of prayer. How's your prayer life? Number three, the temple of our lives needs to be deeply consecrated. Just like the leaders, Yehuda and these other Maccabees had to go in and they had to clean out all of that filth. They had to take that big, ugly idol of Zeus and probably destroy that thing and break that thing down into little bit pieces and haul it off and get it out of there. 
They had to go through and clean out anything that, had to, that was touched by the pig broth. They had to go through, clean everything out, rebuild the temple furniture, and consecrate it again. And when they did, then they could begin back into the temple worship. What in our lives does God still need to consecrate? Are there areas in our lives that God still needs to purify? During this time of Hanukkah, I encourage you to ask the Lord, Lord, search me and know me. See if there's anything in me that doesn't please you and get it out of me. Sanctify me unto you. A lot of people don't realize that Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, he went into the temple and he built, you know, a whip and he went through and he began to turn over the money changers and drive out the people. He said, my, my father's house be a house of prayer. How dare you make it a den of thieves and robbers and come in here ripping off God's people. And, all, and he drove them out. And let me just say a side note that he did this at Passover because just like the Jews would purge the yeast out of their house, he was purging all the yeast out of the temple, out of his father's house. But he drove them out. But here's the interesting thing. We see at the end of his ministry, in Mark chapter 11, 15 through 17, Jesus did it again. I suspect personally that all three years of his ministry, he did it every year. That's my opinion. At Passover, he went in and he drove out the money changers. He purged the yeast out of his father's house. That's my opinion. But what yeast is in our lives that God needs to purge out of us? And finally, just as I read earlier, the oil and the fire. There was miracle, supernatural oil that lit the fire in the menorah and kept it going supernaturally. How many knows that we need a fresh anointing today? I thank God for what God did in my life in the past. I've, I've had some pretty powerful encounters with the Lord. God really touched my life in the 90s revivals many times in many places. But you cannot live on yesterday's old oil. You need a fresh anointing today. You need a fresh baptism in the Holy Ghost and with fire. How many times have I seen some, somebody come up and that God had moved in their life years ago, maybe a church that had revival years ago, but you can tell it's old oil now. We need a fresh move of God, a fresh wind blowing in our lives, a fresh fire. And the only way we're going to get that, guys, is by not compromising with this world. Are y'all hearing me? The things I read before, we've got to be willing to be a holy people unto God and to be made fun of for it. My wife and I have been mocked because of godly, holy convictions. Have we not? Even from family, even persecuted sometimes because we won't compromise about certain things. You've got to be willing to be a holy people set apart. Number two, we've got to be willing to rebuild the altar. We have to be a people of prayer. I've said this so many times, but a praying Christian is a powerful Christian, and a praying church is a powerful church. We've got to be a people of prayer. That's how you keep the fire burning in your life. When Israel built the bronze altar in the days of Moses, they put the wood. God lit that fire in front of all of them, scared them all. They fell on their face. But God told him, I'll light this fire, but you, it's your responsibility to keep the fire going. 
you take the old ash out, you put fresh wood every day, you keep that fire going. It's our responsibility, guys, to, to dump out the ash of yesterday and keep a strong prayer life. And number three, we've got to be willing to let God consecrate us. Don't ever stop going after God. It's one of the things Steve Hill taught me. He said there's always more. Don't ever stop going after God. Don't ever think that you've arrived. What did Paul say? I've, I've not arrived. He said, I press on to the mark of the high calling of God, knowing that I myself haven't achieved it yet. I keep going on after him. I'm, I'm pursuing. Steve said, there's always more. Keep going after more of God. There's got to be a willingness. Say, Lord, sanctify me, purify me. Whatever you've got to do in me, do it. But I want to be on fire for you. If we'll keep ourselves unspotted from the world and we'll keep our prayer life strong and we'll let the Holy Spirit keep purifying us, consecrating us more deeply if we'll keep that process in our lives then the fire will burn bright and the oil will keep flowing there'll be a fresh anointing all right so lord i thank you for tonight you are the god of the harvest bible says pray to the lord of the harvest to send for labors and just as we looked at tonight lord your heart is to seek and save the lost right now it's time for revival and the harvest in the near future. It's time that you're going to purify a bride and get your people ready to meet you in the air. And just like the Hanukkah story, Jesus is coming for wise virgins with extra oil. And Lord, we want to be among those, Lord, that are saturated with fresh oil from heaven, that are burning for you, Lord, that have not compromised. We're not going to be those that are polluted by the world the bible says you're coming for a bride without spot or blemish that we're going to be unspotted from the world and lord we're going to go after you with all of our hearts lord sin revival we pray in jesus name amen all right let me know when recordings are shut down and all of that we're going to get into prayer here in just a moment and i really wanted to 